Well, as we've been going through the book of Daniel, we've seen where God has revealed many things about the kingdoms that were to come. In chapter 3, we saw where God used the vision of a statue to talk about these coming kingdoms. And then in Daniel chapter 7, God talked more about them through the image of various animals. And as we turn today to Daniel chapter 11, what we're going to see is that God drills down even deeper on the details on some of these kingdoms. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first 35 verses today in Daniel chapter 11, and then next Sunday we're going to come back and finish this chapter. And the reason I'm isolating the two is the first 35 verses deal with things that have already been fulfilled, and then the second part of the chapter will deal with prophecies of things that are still to come. And as we look at the things that have already occurred, it's going to be a little bit like going through the pages of a history book today. And I share that because what I want you to understand is while we can look back and say we know how these things were fulfilled, I want you to remember as we're reading this that Daniel was being shown this in 536 B.C. And what that means is it would be hundreds upon hundreds of years before many of the things we're going to talk about today would actually happen. And yet we're going to see that God reveals down to the minutest detail some of the things that were to occur And so, as we've talked about before, when we look at prophecy like this that has been fulfilled, one of the things it should do for us is give us confidence that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. Because what it shows us is when God says something is going to happen, it happens just as he revealed. It tells us God is in control of history, and God knows history. No one other than God could know the level of details of the things that we're going to see occurred again today. Another thing that it should do in giving us confidence is giving us peace in the time in which we live. We live in some very uncertain times. Many people are very anxious, whether it's the election that is about to occur, whether it's the COVID crisis we've been dealing with. And as we look at the things today, what it will remind us again is God can be trusted, that God knows us, God knows his people, and he cares for them. Uh, We're going to see, as we already have in Daniel, that they were in captivity. At this point, they've been released from the 70 years of captivity. But remember, Daniel was written to the Jews in a time when they were in captivity, when they were uncertain what was happening, what their future would be. And what God revealed to them was he had a plan, and he was working his plan. And what it tells us is, in the end, God wins. In the end, God defeats death and darkness, and we are on the winning side. So as we look at this again today, these are things that I hope you will walk away with, the confidence you can have in the Scripture and the peace that God offers to us in these uncertain times. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin in Daniel chapter 11 by reading verse 1. It says, And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now, the one that is speaking here is an angel. Uh, You'll remember in Daniel chapter 10 that we looked at last week, there were demonic forces that were trying to prevent the coming of the message and the messenger. And so the angel that is speaking here is sharing how he was sent to support the Persian king, Darius. Darius was raised up by God to be one of the instruments that would release the Jews from their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And so in verse 2, the angel reveals what is going to happen next. He says, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, we saw the king in power was Cyrus. 
And it says there will be three kings to follow. And the first of these was Cyrus' son, a king by the name of Cambyses. And he reigned from 530 to 522 B.C. And the second was a usurper. What he did was secretly kill Cambyses' son, Smerdes, and he took his place. That's why historians call him the pseudo or false Smerdes. And uh, this guy only reigned for less than a year before he was discovered. And he was assassinated uh, by Darius Histaspes. And Darius reigned from 521 to 486 BC. And then came the fourth king that the focus is on here, which is Xerxes the Great. Uh, now, he's also known as Azarus in the book of Esther. We're told he would be rich and powerful, and he was. Uh, Xerxes ruled from 485 to 465 BC, and with his wealth, he was able to raise up a very large army and went out and began conquering. And the focus here is on when he came and conquered Greece. And so he, he defeats the Greeks. And you'll remember in chapter 8, we saw when he defeated the Greeks, he burned the Acropolis. He desecrated uh, many of the cultural and pagan palaces. He, he just destroyed the city out of spite. And because of that, later, when Alexander the Great comes to power, uh, he gets revenge on this past kingdom. And this is what we saw back in Daniel chapter 8, verse 7, when the goat that represented Alexander the Great came, and you'll remember, destroyed in a furious rage the ram that represented the media Persian Empire that Xerxes was over. So here, this change in power with the coming of Alexander the Great is focused on. It was predicted earlier in Daniel, and now God is giving us more details in verses 3 and 4. It says, and a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside him. Now, the first thing we see about Alexander is he would do as he pleased. And you'll remember his story tells us he moved across the known world conquering kingdoms at will. And then at the age of 32, in the prime of his life, uh, he succumbed to complications from alcoholism along with a, another illness, and he died. And this early into Alexander's kingdom is predicted here. As Daniel is told, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass though not to his own descendants. Alexander had two children, but they were both killed. Neither of them were given the kingdom, so then it was divided among his four generals, as we talked about earlier in the book. This was the image of the leopard with the four heads, you'll recall, predicting this swiftly moving kingdom with the leopard, the speed, and the wings, but also the four heads where it would be divided. Then we saw as well that the, the kingdom would be divided in Daniel 8.8, 8, where the four horns of the goat came up in the place of the one prominent horn, which is Alexander the Great. And so uh, as we come to verses 5 through 20, what God is going to do is he's focusing the spotlight on two of the four territories that the empire was broken up to, Syria and Egypt, that you see highlighted in white. Now, the reason God focuses on these two of the four is because the book of Daniel is telling the Jews what is going to happen with them. And so these two areas of Syria and Egypt, as you see on this map, were located on either side of, of the uh, land of Israel. You had Syria to the north and you had Egypt to the south. 
And Syria had a king over it named uh, Seleucus. He was the general who became the king of this empire, and Ptolemy to the south was another general who became the king over that part of the empire. And these two nations were battling back and forth for 300 years. And as they went back and forth, who is in the middle? It's Israel. And so Israel is suffering as the foreign armies are moving back and forth through their territory, attacking each other. And so this is what God is doing, focusing on these two kingdoms. Verse 5 says, Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. So what this is telling us is of the four generals in these territories, Ptolemy would become the strongest. And when Ptolemy's son, Ptolemy Philadelphus, or Ptolemy II, comes to power, he begins to take over parts of the old empire to the point that he wanted to reconsolidate uh, the empire in its full glory. Now, as Ptolemy's taking over more and more of these territories, uh, verse 8 tells us about this. It says, and after some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south, remember this is Ptolemy down in Egypt, it says, will come to the king of the north, this is up in Syria, and carry out a peaceful arrangement. So it says there's been this battle and war going on, but now he's trying to form an alliance. And he forms it through a marriage. It says, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. Again, we read that and we go, what's going on? Well, when we look back at history, we can see exactly what's going on. Because there was this Egyptian-Syrian alliance that took place in 250 B.C., And it happened when Ptolemy II gave his daughter Berenice to Antiochus II, who was the grandson of uh, Seleucus. Now, before Ptolemy would give his daughter to Antiochus, he said Antiochus had to first divorce his current wife, Laodice. So Laodice was the queen with Antiochus, and Antiochus divorces her, he demotes her to the uh, place of a concubine, and he brings in Berenice as the new queen. Now, two years later, Berenice's father, Ptolemy, dies. And Antiochus doesn't worry about the father anymore, so he demotes his new wife, Berenice, to the status of concubine, and he brings Laodice back in as the queen. Now, when Laodice is back in the seat of power, she gets revenge, and she eliminates the competition. She kills Berenice. She kills the baby they had, the son Antiochus III. And then to make a clean sweep, she gets rid of her husband. Uh, She kills Antiochus II as well. And this is a fulfillment of verse 6, where it says everyone would be given up. Now, as we're talking about this soap opera, I want you to remember God is revealing these things 290 years before they're happening. And... Uh, as we keep reading, we says God, God gives us even more details. He says in verses 7 through 9, But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will, cont- he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. And also their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels, vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt. So it's talking about they're going to carry away the captured idols here. 
And it says, and he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. So what's happening here is, as we just heard about all this killing going on in the north in Syria, God says, let me tell you what's happening, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And so he goes and and gives us a view of what's going on down in Egypt. Now, Ptolemy, the father, had died, and his son, Ptolemy III, comes to power. And he heard that his sister, Berenice, had been killed up in Syria by Queen Laodice. And so he says, I'm going to get revenge. And he marches his army up there, and he kills the queen. He kills Laodice. And so as he comes and he attacks, uh, as the Egyptian army comes and attacks Syria, he plunders the city. And then he captures all of the idols that had been taken. Remember, there were 300 years of battle going back and forth. And historians tell us he brought back 2,500 idols, these pagan gods that had been carried away to Syria. And so he captures his own pagan gods as well as the Syrian gods, and he carries them back down. And as this is happening, I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. Because... What are these pagan idols supposed to do for the people that are worshiping them? Supposed to protect them, supposed to empower them. These are their gods, right? And these supposed fake gods can't even take care of themselves. They're having to be carried back and forth like a baby, right? They can't can't take care of themselves, much less the people that were, were trusting in them. And I want you to think of the contrast of these powerless pagan idols with what we saw back in chapter 10 last week. Remember last week in chapter 10, we saw where the true God of heaven has his angelic army and how God is in control of the heavens and the unseen forces that are doing battle all around us. And in contrast to these pagan gods that are powerless, we have a God who is over angel armies. We have a God who is one who has given us the armor of Ephesians chapter 6, as we talked about last week. We have a God who is resident within us. As the Bible tells us, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Jesus has told us, I will never leave you or forsake you. So as you contrast the false pagan gods of the world that can do nothing for somebody who worships them, think of the picture of the true God of heaven who, who indeed is God and who has power. If you want a further contrast between these two, when you go home today, read 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. Because in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, it talks about how God allowed the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the, the box that had the mercy seat that was placed in the Holy of Holies. And while God didn't reside in that little box, God's uh, presence, God's glory was seen as represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And there came a point where when the Israelites were battling an enemy, the Philistines, they were losing and they said, let's go get the ark and bring it out, thinking God was like some little rabbit's foot, right? You pop him out and boom, he's going to do his thing and wipe out the enemy. But God was allowing the Jews to be conquered because of judgment and disobedience. And so what happened is when they brought the ark out, instead of God smiting the Philistines, uh, he let the ark get captured. And so this representative uh, presence of God was carried away by the enemy. And God didn't have to send his army to go rescue it. What God did instead is he sent plagues and pestilence. Everywhere that the ark went in the enemy territory, plagues broke out to the point that the Philistines were like, get this thing out of here. We don't want uh, the ark anymore. 
And so they put it on a, an ox cart, and, and nobody led it, but God led the, the cart back to Israel without any human intervention. And so you have this contrast to the pagan gods that have to be carried back and forth with the true God of heaven. And as we're talking about these powerless pagan idols needing to be rescued, I want you to make it personal and think about how powerless we are. I want you to think about what we had to be rescued from. Because as you read through the scriptures, it tells us why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 tells us, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, Jesus Christ. Friends, as you look at your life this morning, what are you trusting in? Is it the empty pagan things of the world? It doesn't necessarily have to be an image that you're bowing down to. Is it your portfolio? Is it your business or your job that you once had all the confidence that that was what was going to take care of you? And then COVID hit and many jobs and businesses are are being shut down. Portfolios are, you know, going up and down and crashing and people are worried what, what, what does the future hold? Are you trusting in the true God of heaven? The one who not only meets our daily needs, but the one that we're trusting in for eternal life. If you're trusting in God for all eternity, can you not trust him for today and tomorrow and the next day? If you're somebody who's here who's never received God's great gift of life, that gift of eternal life given through the death of his son Jesus on the cross, I invite you to do so today. Romans 10, 9 says, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He invites us to come to him. And as we're looking at our passage today, as we come back to what is being revealed here about the Syrians being defeated, God says that Ptolemy will plunder them, and then he's going to return home to Egypt. And as this is happening, in verses 10 through 13, what we find is there's this back and forth cycle. This war between Syria and Egypt continues uh, for for hundreds of years. And, And with each back and forth attack, remember who's in the middle. It's Israel. There's an African proverb that says when two elephants get in a fight, uh, the grass loses as it gets trampled. And that's what's happening. Israel's being trampled as these invading armies go back and forth. And as Israel is watching this pendulum of power swing back and forth, back and forth, and suffering every time, they finally decide we're going to throw in on one side of this. And the strongest uh, power at the time was in Syria, so they make an alliance with Syria saying, we're going to battle the Egyptians with you. And this is the fulfillment of verse 14, where it says, Now in those times many will rise up against the king of the south. These are the Egyptians. The violent ones among your people, the Jews, will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they will fall down. So the Egyptians, uh, when they see this alliance made of the Jews with Syria, they say, fine, we're going to come and attack Israel. And they attack and defeat Israel. And then what happens is the Egyptians are right on the border with Syria. And Syria says, we can't have this. So they counterattack. 
And this is what happens in verses 15 and 16. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with the destruction with destruction in his hand. So as they retake the area, Jerusalem is what is called the beautiful land. And it says they decide, we're just going to keep it. As they come down, they don't just make them a neutral place anymore. They say, now we're going to absorb you into our kingdom. And so the Jews who had been trusting in these worldly uh, powers, this alliance, suddenly find themselves bankrupt and used up and helpless. And some of us here have found what that looks like as well as we trust in the things of the world. And for a time, there may be some success. But then in time, we find the futility of the things of the world. Now, it may be that you're somebody here who says, well, Roger, I'm kind of in that camp. I've turned my back on God. I've been trusting in the things of the world. And, and, and yeah, I found that they failed me. What do I do now? Well, you turn back to God is what you do. And God is waiting for you to turn back to him. You can read Luke chapter 15, because in Luke 15, we find the story of the prodigal son, who you'll remember left his father's house, representing how uh, people turned their back and ran away from God. And he went and he lived a life in the world, and he found the emptiness of it, and he was broken, and and he was uh, at at the bottom of the pit. He decided, I'm going to return to my father's house. And when he went back, he went to tell his father, representing God, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'll just be a slave. And God said to him, my son has come home. And he welcomed him back with the full status of what it meant to be a son. And he will do the same with us as men and women, boys and girls who have turned our back on him. If you need a further picture of God's love for you and how he's waiting with open arms, read the book of Hosea. Because in Hosea, it's the story of Israel being an unfaithful bride to God through the story of a, a, a literal husband and wife. And as she goes out and she prostitutes herself, plays the harlot with the world, and when she finds herself empty and used up and cast aside, her husband comes and redeems her and brings her home and restores her to the full status as his wife, just as God did with the nation of Israel, and he'll do with you and me. If you're thinking, well, Roger, I've made a mess of my life. I am so so badly, uh, so far from God. I've done so many bad things in my life. God would never want me. Friends, read Romans 5.8. Because in Romans 5.8, it tells us God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God says, I don't love you this much or this much. I love you this much. And he died for us. And his arms are still open wide, not because they're nailed to a cross, but because he's waiting for you and me to return home. And he'll welcome us. At this point in the prophecy, the Syrians have taken the land of Israel. And they say, you know what? We're just going to keep it. And they tell the Egyptians, let's, let's stop this back and forth war. Let's just make peace. You know, if the Jews had read what God revealed to Daniel hundreds of years before, they would have seen this coming. God told them exactly what's going to happen. And friends, how many times have we also ignored what the word of God said? How much trouble, heartache, discipline from God 
messes we've made in our life could have been avoided if we would just read the owner's manual, the Bible, and do what God said. So as the Jews have ignored the prophecy, God tells them, I'm not done with you yet. It tells him in verse 17, and he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Now, this is a flashback back to these Syrian-Egyptian alliances. And again, looking at history, we can see specifically what is being described here. We can put literal names with who these people are. Because to put an end to hostilities between them, the king of the north, who's Antiochus the Great, says, I'm going to make an alliance with Egypt. And he gave his daughter Cleopatra in marriage to the southern king, Ptolemy Epiphanes. Now, this Cleopatra isn't the well-known one who consorted with Mark, Anthony, and Julius Caesar. That was Cleopatra VII. This one is Cleopatra I, okay? So Cleopatra is used just as Berenice had been earlier to form this alliance for her father, who we're going to see in verses 18 and 19 was facing a new, more powerful enemy. He says, we've got to stop fighting each other because suddenly Rome has risen up on the world scene. And so he's got to be prepared to battle Rome. So he goes to make peace, and he also creates this alliance. Antiochus hopes his daughter could influence her husband, the king to the south, to join with him and go and battle against Rome. But as God had revealed, it says she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. So what history tells us is Cleopatra didn't do as her daddy wanted, but instead she shows loyalty to her new husband, and she says, hey, as Egypt, we should just stay out of the fight. And so this brings us to verses 18 and 19, where Antiochus has to go off and fight alone. It says, then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Well, history tells us Antiochus is defeated. He's, he's replaced by his older son, Seleucus IV. And Rome says, well, because of your rebellion, you now have to pay us uh, a tribute. And so they require this large sum of money to be paid by the defeated northern uh, kingdom. And so what this king does is he heavily taxes the people of Israel. Remember, he took over their land and he says, you're going to be my piggy bank. So in verse 20, it says, then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor throughout the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. So as he's using Israel as a piggy bank, the people are tired of being plundered. And it says they're going to find a way to get rid of this king. Now notice it says he's not killed in anger or battle. And again, what happens is we can look at history and see uh, that his treasure, the king's treasure, poisons him because he wants a bigger cut of the pie. And he says, if I kill the king, I can steal more money. And so this is how this king gets taken out. Verse 21 tells us, and in his place, the place of that king, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. 
Now, this points us back to what we saw in Daniel chapter 8, because in Daniel chapter 8, you'll remember we talked about this king here who was named Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. We don't have time to go all through what we covered in chapter 8, so if you missed that message or need a, a refresher, go back and listen to that sermon on our website, because Antiochus Epiphanes is the forerunner to the final Antichrist. And we talked about who this king was. Now, notice it says here he's not the rightful heir to the throne. That would have been Seleucus' son, Demetrius. But Demetrius was being held by Rome as a prisoner to make sure the taxes got paid. And so this is where we are at this point in the prophecy. And then in verses 22 through 27, it says he operates and gains his power through a combination of of lies, flattery, and war which again we talked about back in chapter 8 as we we saw all that's going to happen as a forerunner to the final Antichrist and the tribulation period. And, And these two guys share a lot of characteristics, including their hatred for the Jews. When I say these two guys, this King Antiochus Epiphanes as well as the final Antichrist. And so in verse 28 we're told, then he will return to his land with much plunder. But his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. The people of the holy covenant are the Jews. And here it's saying that he focuses his fury on Israel, just as the final Antichrist will do. Now there's going to be initial success, but then remember, God is in control of history. God is the one who is raising up and taking down. God is the one who allows people to do things and, with, and, and keeps them from doing other things. And so in verses 29 through 30, we're told, and at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now, what we're doing again is able to look in the rearview mirror of history. And and what we find is happening here is that Antiochus takes his army and he goes down to attack the Egyptians. But when he arrives, he finds that the Egyptians have made an alliance with the Romans. And the Romans have landed a large army by sea. This is talking about the ships of Kittim that are coming. And at that point, the Roman general was a guy by the name of Popolius. And he he confronts Antiochus and he says, hey, you're not attacking the Egyptians or you have to fight Rome as well. He says, in fact, what I want you to do is make peace with the Egyptians and then I want you to take your army and go home. Now, Antiochus is in a rock and a hard place. He probably has a big enough army at the moment to overcome those two, but then he knows the full fury of Rome's coming. So he says, well, I need time to think about this. And Populus takes his sword out and he draws a circle around him he says, take all the time you want, only give me your answer before you step out of the circle. And so now he's faced with death at that moment. He's humiliated, and he takes his army and he marches home. Now, what country is he going to pass through as he marches back home? Israel. And he's angry, he's mad, he's humiliated. We saw already in verse 28, he hates the Jews, so he decides to take out his anger on them. And history tells us he massacres 80,000 Jews. He plunders the temple. He desecrates it by offering a pig on the altar, as we talked about back in chapter 8. He also sets up an idol of Zeus, demanding that the Jews worship this false pagan god. 
And this is what we find being foretold in verses 31 through 35. It says, and forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who acted wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. So it's talking about a portion of the Jews who are going to rebel against Antiochus, as we'll talk about in a moment. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. So what's being talked about here is how the Jews have to make a choice. Antiochus has taken over Jerusalem. He set up this pagan worship and he said, you have one of two choices. You can bow down and worship this pagan God. You can make sacrifices to the false gods and and have freedom within my limitations and live. Or you can refuse and you're going to suffer hardship and even death. And we're told that many of the Jews are going to compromise. They chose to worship the pagan gods, to do these things. And others said, no, we're not going to compromise our faith. We will even die. And those who stood for God were from a family, the family of Judas Maccabees. In 166 BC, there was a, a priest by the name of Matthias Maccabees. And he's there in the temple And he sees some of the Jewish priests who have compromised offering an unclean sacrifice to the pagan gods. Matthias says, no way, and he kills these Jewish priests. And when he does so, his action rallies the rest of the family as well as others in the nation who join in this rebellion. Now, many are killed, as was predicted here, but ultimately they succeeded in defeating the army of Antiochus. They were able to retake the temple. They were able to push Antiochus out of Jerusalem And as they cleansed and rededicated the temple, they found enough of the purified oil to relight the lamp in the temple, but there was only enough to last one day. Have you ever heard of the the Jewish festival of Hanukkah? Hanukkah is called the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. And as you look at the menorah used in a Hanukkah, the middle candle is called the servant candle. And you'll notice there are eight candles. The normal menorah has seven. And so what they do is they commemorate this miraculous extension of the life of the oil that lasted for eight days until enough new oil could be purified and made to continue with what the Old Testament had prescribed. And so the festival of Hanukkah is a commemoration that the Jews every year do to say, we remember this great miracle. We remember those who stood for God in the midst of hardship when they could have compromised and how God came through and preserved the people. And this is something that that is very pertinent for us in the time in which we live. Brothers and sisters in Christ, persecution is increasing. Persecution has been rampant throughout the world. I have been in numerous countries around the world where I have talked to believers who have been in prison personally, who have had family members killed, I have been detained personally by the police in one of these countries and questioned why I was there and why I was teaching the Bible. And so there is persecution that takes place all around the world. And what we are beginning to see here in America is just the tip of the iceberg. 
And God is saying to us as his people, will you stand? When you're faced with a choice and the compromises come, where you're told we'll bow down, compromise your faith, and then you can have freedoms. You don't have freedoms. Freedoms will be taken more and more, and ultimately we'll see the things happening uh, that Daniel has predicted in the end times that are going to take place. When we stand for God, there is a cost. But I want to remind you, as we talked about in the beginning, in the end, God wins. God has revealed his plan, and as believers in Christ, we are on the winning side. And so you will have to make a choice if you have not already. Will you stand for Christ in the midst of the darkness in the world in which we live? And festivals like Hanukkah uh, are reminders to us of, of what God has done and will do. We saw in Daniel chapter 9 how God has a master plan. He revealed all of the end times events. And he told us in Daniel 9.26 that the Messiah would be cut off. He told us that his son would come and die on a cross in order to make the payment for the penalty of our sins. And he, he fulfilled that. And he rose from the dead three days later. And he's ascended into heaven after walking the earth for 40 days and appearing to more than 500 witnesses. Jesus ascended into heaven. And we've seen through Daniel how God has outlined what is to come next. There is a rapture where we as believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There is a second coming where Jesus returns to the earth physically. There will be a millennial thousand-year reign of righteousness that we return as raptured believers. And then comes eternity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are on the winning side. And God calls on us to stand firm. He has a plan and he's working it through. And there is a day coming when all things are going to be made right. And as we come to the end of our service today, we're coming to the communion table. Another memorial that God has set up for us. Another reminder to us of God's redemption of his people. And how he has redeemed us as well. As sinners, we owed a penalty of death which Jesus paid for on the cross. And when we accept his death in our place, his blood washes away our sins. And so as we come to this communion table, if you're here with us at the 410 campus, you were given a cup with a wafer that represents the body of Jesus and grape juice that represents his blood. If you're at home, you have various elements that you've prepared at this point that you can get in the bread that represents the body of Christ. And this is a memorial to us. You remember another memorial God gave was uh, the Passover feast. And it pointed to his redemption where God, uh, when the people painted the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over that home. And as Christians, we've painted the blood of the permanent lamb of God, Jesus Christ, on the doorpost of our hearts. And in judgment, God passes over us because he sees the blood of the lamb. And this is what we remember today. God's gift of his son, his gift of grace. And he told us as he set up the communion uh, service in Paul, the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, as you open this and take out the bread. Paul uh, tells us how Jesus took the Passover celebration, the dinner, and he translated it and told him of the, the final redemption that would come through Jesus. And Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ, eat it in remembrance of him. Then as you open the cup, be careful not to spill on yourselves. And Paul also pointing to that last supper meal where Jesus took and spoke of this cup of redemption from the Passover Seder. It tells us in the same way Jesus took the cup and also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Jesus that washes away our sins, drink it in remembrance of him. You join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for memorials. Memorials like Passover that spoke of your redemption of your people from the days of slavery in Egypt and then how you translated it for us into the communion service, showing us the ultimate redemption that comes through the blood of your son, the Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist said in John one twenty nine, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you, God that you sent your son. We thank you, Jesus, that you willingly went to the cross in fulfillment of Daniel 9.26 to be the Messiah who would be cut off. Lord God, we thank you for commemorative ceremonies like Hanukkah that remind us of your people who stood for you in dark and difficult times and how you were faithful. Lord God, would you help us to be like those early people who stood for you, the Maccabees? Would we stand for what is right in the difficult times in which we live. We thank you, God, that there is a day coming when you will make all things right. We thank you that you have made things right in our relationship with you through your son who restored the broken relationship we had, who became the bridge so that we could come uh, back to you as your children. As those who belong to you, would we live for you? Would we represent you well? Would we stand for you in the days in which we live? We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you again for being here to worship with us. As we go into the world, there are difficult things we face, but we have a God who is bigger than all that we face, and we can stand firm with him.